The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled The Clot Thickens in the Hemophilia Story. Clinical Perspectives on Enhancing Outcomes with Innovative Non-Factor Therapy. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash YXF 860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available. Welcome, everyone. This is The Clot Thickens in the Hemophilia Story, Clinical Perspectives on Enhancing Outcomes with Innovative Non-Factor Therapy. Tonight's panelists are myself, I'm Amy Shapiro, and Dr. Pratima Chowdhury, my esteemed colleague. Our goals for today are to augment your understanding of the mechanistic underpinnings and clinical evidence supporting innovative non-factor therapies in hemophilia. We also would like to provide you with the skills needed to incorporate these innovative non-factor strategies into hemophilia treatment plans going forward. Also to equip you with the resources to address patient education, adherence, dosing, and safety considerations with non-factor therapy. There have been tremendous advancements in hemophilia therapy over the ages. In the beginning, there was whole blood, FFP, and cryoprecipitate. We've developed plasma-derived factor concentrates, and then recombinant factor concentrates were made available to patients in the early 1990s. We've then gone to extended half-life factor VIII and factor IX therapies, and the introduction of the first non-factor novel therapy, emicizumab, in 2018. We also have had this year approval of the first hemophilia B and hemophilia A gene therapy, and now we have in development new therapies coming forward, including tincizumab in patients with hemophilia A with inhibitors, which has been licensed in some countries for hemophilia B. Uh, we also have available a new extended independent von Willebrand factor, extended half-life recombinant factor 8, X10, which is in this country um, given a, a different product name which really has truly broken the von Willebrand factor barrier and has an extended half-life with once-weekly dosing. So what is our current armamentarium? We can replace the missing protein that's identified in factor 8 and 9 deficiency and return them to intermittent normal hemostatic levels. This is applicable applicable if the protein is in the extracellular milieu, such as factor 8 and 9. We have moved to non-replacement therapies with the advent of the first novel therapy, which is a factor 8 mimetic. The metabolic manipulation that compensates, this, this is a metabolic manipulation that compensates for the missing factor. It is not a true uh, replacement of the clotting factor in its uh, original form. These are small molecules and they are able to be given subcutaneously. We also have gene therapy, which hopefully restores the endogenous expression of the protein and provides a functional gene or edit to an abnormal gene uh, in the individual. This could provide a potential for long-term cure or remission depending upon the level that any individual patient 
achieves with these therapies. So how do we take all of these products and leverage them to improve our patient's care? Despite all of this, and with amazing progress that's been accomplished in the last 20 years, we still have challenges. Is our prophylaxis optimal for all of our patients? How difficult is adherence to current regimens? It can be quite difficult for some patients, especially those with inhibitors to factor nine. How do we minimize breakthrough bleeding episodes for patients on prophylax because sometimes they still occur? And how do we ensure best care for everyone and overcome barriers so that we truly achieve health equity? We do have expectations for better care going forward. We really would like prophylaxis for all patients who could benefit. We want to decrease the burden of care. We would like to target zero spontaneous bleeding in our patients with hemophilia and enable our patients with hemophilia to leave to really live an active life similar to a non-hemophilic individual to normalize their existence. So what do we have so, so far and what's emerging? We have the first factor eight mimetic, which is emicizumab, which is useful in patients with hemophilia A with and without inhibitors. Coming along in the pipeline, we have a second generate, two second generation factor eight mimetics, MIMATE, which is uh, a for hemophilia A with and without inhibitors, and NXT007, which is also a second generation mimetic in earlier trials, phase one, two. We also have medications or therapies that target different points of the coagulation system. Uh, specifically anti-TFPI therapies, concizumab and morstazumab, and SINRNA, silencing RNA therapies, targeting antithrombin, fetuzaran, and a serpene protease inhibitor targeting uh, protein C or serpene PC. And uh, morstazumab and concizumab are uh, pretty far along in clinical trials, as is fetuzaran, and serpent PC is coming along uh, nicely behind it. Our emerging non-factor therapies share some key similarities that can improve the management of people with hemophilia. They can be given as prophylactic agents. Unfortunately, if breakthrough bleeding occurs, other therapy does need to be utilized as these are not effective for acute bleeding episodes. Some of these agents are effective in both hemophilia A and B. The factor VIII mimetics are only effective in factor VIII therapy, and they can be used in patients with and without inhibitors. They provide a consistent level of a therapeutic agent, which is steady state. They are subcutaneously administered and reduce the frequency of administration compared to factor replacement therapy and bypassing agents. So I'm going to now turn it over to my colleague, Dr. Chowdhury, to discuss some of the newer developments. Thanks very much, Amy. Thank you for the overview of some of the really uh, major advances we have seen in this area in the last 10 years. So I think if we kind of now start thinking about all of the non-replacement therapies or non-factor therapies and then apply it to a clinical case history, 
we can then start seeing how much of a difference we are making for this group of patients. I think I've taken a patient, a 25-year-old gentleman who has come as a new student from another country. He has a joint damage because of recurrent bleeds, and he's now presenting with a right ankle bleed. On further history, he reports on-demand fact rate in his childhood, and for the last few years, he says he's been taking activated prothrombin complex, prothrombin complex concentrate for management of the bleed, and further investigation shows he's got antibodies to fact rate, and the teacher is about 14 Bethesda units. So I think that kind of pulling together the current guidelines and also some of the advances that uh, Amy has mentioned, let's just think in terms of how do we kind of marry up these uh, situations, the various uh, guidelines and also the advances. In terms of if you look at the World Federation of Hemophilia guideline, they suggest that if you have a low responding inhibitor, you can continue with the replacement therapy and if the patients respond, you can give high doses of factorite. But if they don't respond, then you do need to consider no uh, activated factor 7A or ABCC. But if you have got higher responding inhibitors, the idea is that you would stop exposure to factorite and also initiate immune tolerance therapy. You can treat an acute bleed in this context with any of the bypass agents. And then again, even during ITI, you can use the bypass agents. But just for a minute, let us think about in terms of the management of high responding inhibitor and the issues of ITI. This is very appropriate if the patient has been started prophylaxis, we have seen it very early, and then the chances of eradicating an inhibitor is very good if you initiate ITI quite early in the evolution of the inhibitor. But this young gentleman has had an inhibitor for possibly five to 10 years, he, and I think for us to embark on ITI on this, uh, in this gentleman, it's going to be quite challenging. So really, we are kind of looking in terms of what are the other options available for us. The big option is uh, the, our factor mimetic or emicizumab. Really, the introduction of emicizumab has been a major paradigm shift in terms of the management of hemophilia. Until emicizumab had kind of entered into clinical practice, we had replacement therapy and the hope was of gene therapy. So the entire area of what we would call as non-factor therapies or non-replacement therapies, where you're trying to restore thrombin generation through alternate pathways, has opened up uh, entire opportunities for groups of patients who have never really benefited from prophylaxis, typically your severe hemophilia A patient with a factor eight inhibitor. If they have not eradicated the inhibitor, they were looking at bypass agent prophylaxis, which wasn't particularly effective. So here, in terms of what are the major differences that we understand between factor eight and emicizumab, both of them facilitate the interaction between 9A and 10. Emicizumab does have a lower affinity for its substrates compared to factor eight A. But this is compensated by the fact that it has no on and off mechanism, so it's constantly on. And therefore, although it has got a lower affinity, you're still getting enough amount of thrombin generation to be effective for prophylaxis, but not enough for the management of bleed. What, what does the long-term data of emicizumab show? We know the pivotal study showed us that the uh, drug was effective. And here what we see is the rolling bleed rate across every 24 weeks. 
So in the first 24 weeks, this is after introduction of emicizumab, you see that the bleed rate has dropped to about 1.9. But as prophylaxis continues, you see that the bleed rates continuously drop. And generally, they're being steady at about 0.7 to 0.8. And this is something we have seen in other prophylactic regimens as well. So this is not unique to emicizumab. When you move a patient from a non-demand to a prophylactic regimen, there is a dramatic decrease. And then as we continue, then you kind of attend, uh, you achieve a stable or a plateau phase. And in fact, that is reflected if you now look at the, on the right side, the proportion of patients who have got zero bleeds, you see in the first uh, 24 weeks, it's about 70%, but then it stabilizes around 80%. And it's kind of pretty much uh, a kind of steady there. One of the big things with emicizumab has been in terms of what is the potential for initiating prophylaxis in the infant. We know that there is a high risk of intracranial bleed in the first year of life. So there has always been this desire to say, can we start prophylaxis within the first month of life? And in fact, this was addressed in the Haven 7 study where they gave the typical loading dose and then continued with prophylaxis every couple of weeks, and then looked again at the number of treated bleeds and the different types of bleeds in terms of spontaneous joint bleeds and treated joint bleeds. If we now look at the outcomes in the study, what we can see is that in terms of all bleeds, it's just about two. In terms of treated bleeds, it has dropped to about 0.4. Of course, we have no baseline, so we would kind of compare with what our understanding, what we know from our routine clinical practice. But if we look on the right side in terms of the number of uh, children or infants with zero bleeds across the various categories, you can see that there is absolutely no treated spontaneous bleed. But you do have about uh, around 6% of the patients had about treated joint bleed. So basically about 95% of the infants did not have any treated joint bleed. I'm going to hold here for a moment because I'm an adult hematologist. And I would like to invite Amy to comment, particularly in terms of the results, but also what are the implications for our clinical practice? Amy, you're a pediatrician. I, I, what, are you, what is your take on this? I, I think this is really truly amazing data and has transformed our care of young children less than a year of age. Uh, prior to the advent of this therapy, it was difficult to administer intravenous replacement therapy. We often did it for the onset of bleeding events. Parents always worried about uh, their children developing bleeding events, seeing the signs and symptoms. And the start of prophylaxis was quite difficult, often with the use of a central venous access device, which is a surgical procedure. With the advent of emicizumab and the ability to start in an infant uh, near birth, around birth, as soon as you have a diagnosis, you are able to achieve a far more mild bleeding phenotype and relieve, I think, the stress that families go through during that first year of life, um, often worrying about that child, following them around, and concern for bleeding. The majority of bleeds we have seen in the infants that we've treated have been injury-related, as you would expect in a patient with a mild deficiency. Uh, so overall, I think the outcome has been excellent. 
I think it has had a major impact on parental anxiety because a lot of the time, at least when I recall during my pediatric posting, you say your child has a severe bleeding disorder, which can be life-threatening, but we're not going to start treatment for at least another 12 to 18 months. It's a tremendous, I think, relief to families. You know, I uh, have families who used to just follow their children around, worry about Everything they did uh, had difficulty sending them to daycare or allowing anyone else to care for the child, worried about interactions with siblings or playing. I, I think it's really transformed not just the medical care, but the psychosocial aspects for these individuals. Thanks a lot, Amy. Thank you. So if we kind of now go back to our young gentlemen, so we've now essentially said that the standard of care for patients with the severe hemophilia A with an inhibitor is emicizumab prophylaxis. And in fact, he was switched to emicizumab prophylaxis. And then on 12 months, uh, he's still having experiencing about two to three bleeds a year. On further testing, we've seen that he has uh, really the antibody teeter has gone down. This is not uncommon when patients are initiated on emicizumab prophylaxis. The same thing, the challenge for us is now to understand and say, is two to three bleeds uh, good enough? Of course, it was much better than what he was before, where he was probably bleeding about 10 to 15, having 10 to 15 bleeds a year. He's now on emicizumab. The patient is delighted. But I think the challenge for us is, or are we kind of uh, being too aspirational, saying, what else can we do for this patient? And particularly in the context of what uh, Amy was mentioning in terms of all the emerging therapies. So Amy, again, I just wanted to kind of uh, hear your opinion in terms of uh, the small group of patients who continue to have bleeds on emicizumab. Yes, I, I think that is a very real-world experience, especially for patients who have joint disease. It may take quite a bit of time for their joint disease to calm down, um, especially for this patient who has had a difficult road. There are a couple of um, things that we have tried for these patients. For patients who have recurrent bleeds on emicizumab, uh, we do check their APTT to make sure it remains short to assure ourselves that they have not developed a neutralizing antibody against the agent. It's very rare that that happens, but we want to be assured of that. If that is not the case, uh, we can consider doubling the dose of emicizumab. Uh, if you, and usually we do that when we're treating them on a weekly basis with emicizumab. Another thing uh, we can do for these individuals is optimize the dose of the bypassing agent 7A that they receive. There are dosing guidelines, and we tend to use less with emicizumab because of the augmented thrombin generation, but you can increase and titrate up the dose and look at the intervals that you're using to try to get better bleed control in these patients. Thanks, Amy. I think the other thing that we have tended to do our, in our center is we also tend to scan the joints, and I'm aware that in the presence of cyanovitis, we tend to do radioactive cyanovectomy. But access to radioactive cyanovectomy is kind of not uniform across the world. Do you have, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm not aware of whether you have access in the U.S. for radioactive yeah. We do, but it is not so easy as it was before. 
Um, another thing we do is scanning the joints is at times we can do steroid injections, which can help with uh, calming down inflamed tissues in the area as well. Thanks, Amy. So I think, uh, again, I think one of the things that Amy has mentioned is in terms of Nova 7, as many of us know, there is a drug-drug interaction between emicizumab and also activated prothrombin complex concentrate, where the pivotal trial showed that the, the thrombotic microalgiopathy seen in this drug-drug interaction is both a function of the duration and the dose of ABCC. Whilst it's not an absolute no, it is generally not recommended for, it's absolutely not recommended for home treatment. If it needs to be done, it should be done in supervised settings. For the patients at home, the recommendation is they should use Nova 7. And again, I think our variable dosing has been used because of the augmented thrombin generation that is seen in this group of patients. So having looked at the management of breakthrough bleeds, the challenge for us, or the, I think the aspiration is, is there anything else we can offer the patient other than higher doses of emicizumab? So I think Amy already mentioned there were two uh, bispecific antibodies or two next generation bispecific antibodies. The first is Mimate, it is slightly more advanced in terms of its uh, clinical development. It's a fully humanized IG4 bispecific antibody, and its epitope, the binding epitopes to 90 and 10 are different from that of emicizumab, and there is a little bit of a difference in terms of the potency and also the thrombin generation capacity. In terms of if you look at the development program, it is typical of any drug development program. We had Frontier 1, where you had the single ascending dose and the multiple ascending dose to look at the dose uh, escalation and to identify the right dose. For the pivotal study, which is the Frontier 2, the Frontier 3 is the pediatric program, and then the Frontier 4 is the open label extension. What the um, a multiple ascending dose cohort showed is that in cohort 1, which was the lowest dose, we continued to see bleeds, but beyond cohort 1 in 2, 3, 4, and 5, there were very few bleeds the very few bleeds seen. And in cohort five, one patient had the majority of bleeds. And it's really, it's not very clear when you interrogate the history of exactly what was happening to the patient because re investigations did not show anything obvious. And then I think in terms of the potency of these uh, new uh, second and uh, next generation or second generation bispecific antibodies, what you can see is the pink boxes are emicizumab, and to the left is the mimate across the different cohorts. Essentially, the drug is more potent. What it means is that for weight to weight, you will see a higher amount of thrombin generation. So, And in fact, what we have found is that the thrombin generation is uh, basically what we see with emicizumab is equal to what we see in about cohort 2, cohort 3 of our mimate. So in terms of uh, the uh, what else, are the, what did the phase 1 studies show on the single and multiple ascending dose in addition to doing the dose finding and the thrombin generation, the safety was also important. Across all the cohorts, we didn't see any kind of adverse events that would raise concerns. There were a few injection site reactions, and there was one hypersensitive reaction. But other than that, there wasn't particularly anything 
uh, concerning that prevented the further development of the molecule. One of the unique uh, feature of the pivotal study was the decision to go with a tier dosing. So rather than do dosing of milligram per kilogram, a decision was taken to kind of do tier dosing. Basically, the patients were divided into three weight categories, and depending upon the frequency of injection, whether they want to do once a week, once every two weeks, or once in a month, they were assigned a dose, and that is the dose that they could give. The major reason for doing the tier dosing was to allow the pen, and in terms of essentially, you have a pen device which comes with a fixed dose, and you inject the amount of the dose, which is quite easy for the patients to operate, and then uh, and then you kind of throw the pen away. So, and what the tier dosing was based on the PKPD analysis that was done on the MAD cohort data, where essentially you looked at the concentration of mimate and then correlated it to the thrombin generation, and then you kind of did the analysis is dumped in terms of what is the lowest effective dose and what is the highest effective level. And then the modeling was done across the different tier doses to see is it a pro that are there patients who will fall outside of the so-called effective range. There was no suggestion that the patients were going to fall outside of this effective range. Hence the decision to go with the tier dosing, which is probably going to be simpler and also potentially decrease the wastage. Of course, having a new bispecific antibody comes with the issue, well, how are we going to facilitate the switching? So I think this is a, these are in vitro data. What essentially you see is that in terms on the left-hand side, you see the plasma concentration. When the switch was done on not, on not, not weak, and then as the emesuzumab concentration goes down, the mimate concentration stabilizes. And on the right-hand side, you see the thrombin generation, which essentially shows a stabilization on thrombin generation and potentially a little bit of a peak. So Amy, I was just wondering, what do you think we can expect in terms of challenges at the time of switching? Do you think this data is adequate? Uh, in my mind, I do think it's adequate. It will be interesting to see... Um, the overall efficacy once the trials are completed. As we speak to patients, uh, many of them are very happy where they are. Uh, yeah. However, the dosing may be difficult for some patients based upon their regimen in terms of the volume and vial wastage. So this could be very attractive uh, just in terms of drug usage and administration. And if thrombin generation overall is augmented with this agent, uh, it could also be attractive uh, for patients to essentially achieve a similar higher level to factor eight. Yeah, thanks, Amy. I think you made a very good point. I did forget about that. I think the biggest advantage of the potency is it does have a dramatic impact on the on the volume of the injection, which means that patients may not have as much of a stinging uh, reaction because some of the pain discomfort of subcutaneous injection is related to the volume of the injection. So next question is what else is in the pipeline? Have we have now seen emesuzumab? So we would expect uh, Chugai Roche to have the next uh, emesuzumab. 
or often called as the son or daughter of MSC Zimam. And that is the NXT 007. I must say, I do love the name of 007. And this is a bispecific antibody. Again, it is based on the emicizumab kind of principles. What they've essentially done is they have kind of uh, chosen two, the, the two light chains or the two fragments that bind to 9A and 10 have been modified. And the FC fragment has also been modified. The net effect is that you see increased thrombin generation compared to emicizumab but you also see a much more longer half-life. The half-life is now going up to 90 days compared to the 28 days that you see with emicizumab. Really, you're looking at, in terms of an injection, about four or five times a year. Where are we in terms of the study, our clinical development? At the moment, the multiple-dose study was done in healthy subject cohorts to understand what is the dose that should be taken in terms of the um, in terms of a clinical study, in terms of patients with hemophilia. If I'm not mistaken, I think that currently the study is underway where they are looking at the um, uh, dose ascending, multiple dose ascending, um, the MAD part in patients with hemophilia. And we hope to probably see the results later on in 2024. So I think for us as a group of clinicians and also as a community, what do we want from this next generation? The biggest advantage of increased potency is that you can, uh, is that it decreases the volume of the injection. And this has been mainly brought apart through modification of the binding affinities of the two, um, of the uh, FAB fragments. And then we, I think the idea is that with increased affinity and increased potency, we also hope to see improved thrombin generation, which would translate into improved bleed control. And again, potentially we may have a longer half-life with the reduction in the injections, which is again appreciated by most of us. And then I think it should be more convenient to administer with a smaller volume. So I think coming back again to the patient, uh, our young man who has got two to three bleeds of emcizumab, the question is, would we consider an alternative bispecific antibody, whether it is my mate or NXT or salmon? What are the other things that we should consider in terms of risk that we should think about? Of course, the patient preference is equally very important. We've already mentioned in terms of the orthopedic evaluation, particularly in terms of synovitis whether the patient would benefit from radioactive cytovectomy or potentially even other orthopedic procedures. So Amy, again, probably another question for you as you look at other non-factor therapies. What do you think about the increased potency in terms of, is that something that we should be concerned about? Whilst it is very attractive that it is much more potent and there's going to be improved throwing generation, are there any kind of uh, other are there any cons or are there any trade-offs that we should be aware of? I, I think as you are an adult treater, there are many trade-offs that we need to be concerned about. When you're looking at a very young patient uh, with good joints and you're targeting a higher thrombin generation, I think you're in a safer zone. Uh, those individuals have less thrombotic risk uh, and over time tend to do quite well. As you age, you have the normal effects of aging, um, blood pressure, cholesterol, weight, 
development of uh, cardiovascular disease, and the higher thrombin generation normalizes the patient and puts them at higher risk for development of those consequences, and there's no off mechanism. Uh, so there's no normal regulation, and they have a very long half-life, which can be concerning, I think. And I, I think especially from your end of the treatment spectrum, that's an issue. No, you're right. And I think that will be interesting for us to kind of, as we might be thinking, even though bispecific antibodies, that we may start choosing different bispecific antibodies for different age groups as well. And then I'm going to hand over to Amy to continue with the other non-factor therapies or other uh, non-replacement therapy options that are kind of making their way swiftly through the regulatory authorities. Well, thank you very much, Pratiman. A great presentation. So I'm going to start with a patient of mine uh, that we saw. And he is a, well, we when we first met him, he was an infant. Uh, he is a pediatric patient with severe factor IX deficiency. He is Caucasian and Hispanic. And he actually has a family history of hemophilia. We've taken care of his uncle throughout his life. So we uh, anticipated his birth and diagnosed him through cord blood testing. He has a genetic mutation in the family that is uh, listed here. It's been reported twice in the EHAD Factor IX database, uh, and neither case was associated with an inhibitor. And indeed, his uncle uh, was on Factor IX prophylaxis and never developed an inhibitor. So uh, as he got a bit older, um, he had some, he didn't have too many bleeding episodes during the first year of life, but then we started to think about prophylaxis for him. Uh, and at that point in time, we started an extended half-life recombinant factor nine, the FC uh, factor nine uh, extended half-life once weekly. And that was initiated uh at 12 months of age and with planning with the family uh, for placement of a port. Uh, the family couldn't master home infusion therapy, so we had tried that, uh, and then therefore that was why the port was planned. And at the time that he came in for the port, he had had 12 exposure days and had done well with therapy. However, at the time that he came in, he got his initial dose uh, for a bolus and his post-bolus level was quite low, which was concerning. And he, we thought at that point in time, we might give him a second dose to which he actually reacted, developed one of the typical factor nine um, anaphylactoid reactions. And uh, his inhibitor was detectable at that time. So he was switched to recombinant factor 7A. And we used that to uh, place his port. We did discuss uh, immune tolerance with the family. It is difficult in factor IX deficient patients who have inhibitors, especially those who have reactions to products, and they did decline. He continued to experience uh, quite a few breakthrough bleeding episodes. Uh, we did even try 7A prophylaxis with him. Uh, these occurred even despite prophylaxis two to three times a month. Uh, and we had to use quite high doses of Nova 7 to control bleeds. Otherwise, uh, the bleed would go on for a prolonged 
period of time and he'd require quite a few number of doses. So the pa- really, this patient had a lot of challenges. Uh, he had repeated bleeds. He had a high burden of care. He had slow resolution of bleeding, and he really had a lot of potential for long-term sequelae, as we have seen in our older patients with factor IX deficiency with an inhibitor. And at that point in time, we really began to think, is there any new non-factor therapy option that we could offer to this patient that might improve his clinical circumstances? And at that time, uh, the concizumab anti-TFBI trials were going on, and he was below the age limit for entry uh, onto that trial, but we did receive um, permission for compassionate care for this patient. So I think we were quite fortunate. So this is a schema looking at non-factor therapies and uh, the ways that we can modulate the natural anticoagulants or the inhibitors of coagulation that downregulate coagulation naturally in our system and change the balance of hemostasis so that we lower these and increase the ability to generate thrombin. These mechanisms include a silencing uh, RNA that targets antithrombin, which is fetuzaran. We also have a, a serpene PC that targets activated uh, protein C that's in development. And we have two agents currently in development that target the Kuditz 2 or the K2 domain of tissue factor pathway inhibitor that include concizumab and marstazumab, which I will address next. So anti-TFPI antibodies are under development for hemophilia A and B, both with and without inhibitors. Concizumab is an anti-TFPI antibody directed against the Kunitz 2 domain of TFPI. The K2 domain of TFPI downregulates the generation of factor 10A. And by inhibiting this domain with concizumab, you increase the ability to generate factor 10A and increase thrombin drive and clot formation. This mechanism of action is effective in, in the absence of either factor 8 or factor 9 or the presence of inhibitors. Explorer 7 was designed to assess the safety and efficacy of concizumab in patients with hemophilia A or B with inhibitors. Patients were randomly assigned in a 1 to 2 ratio to receive no prophylaxis for at least 24 weeks, group 1, or concizumab prophylaxis for at least 32 weeks, group 2. In addition, groups 3 and 4 consisted of individuals who were non-randomly assigned to receive concizumab prophylaxis for at least 24 weeks. Shown in this slide are the results of this phase three study with the mean ABR on the left and the median ABR on the right. The mean ABR was significantly lower in the concizumab treated group and the median ABR in this group was zero. Overall, 64% of patients on concizumab prophylaxis had zero bleeds versus 11% on no prophylaxis. Among patients with hemophilia A or B with inhibitors, the annualized bleeding rate was lower with concizumab prophylaxis than with no prophylaxis. The Multi-7 Explorers uh, 8 trial prospectively evaluated the efficacy and safety of concizumab as a prophylactic treatment among 148 individuals with hemophilia A or B 
without inhibitors. Male patients aged greater than or equal to 12 years with hemophilia A or B were randomized 1 to 2 to no prophylaxis, ARM1, 24 weeks, or concizumab prophylaxis, ARM2, greater than or equal to 32 weeks. After the main part of the trial, 24 weeks for ARM1, patients in, in ARM1 could switch to concizumab prophylaxis. The confirmatory analysis cutoff point is the CACO. The comparative number of treated spontaneous and traumatic bleeding episodes expressed as the estimated mean annualized bleeding rate between treatment ARMS-1, which again are on-demand factor treatment, no prophylaxis, and ARM-2, concizumab prophylaxis, served as the study's primary endpoint. The study met its primary endpoint with researchers reporting a significantly lower estimated mean annualized bleeding rate among patients with hemophilia A treated with prophylactic concizumab compared with no prophylaxis. So that's an ABR of 2.7 versus 19.3 and a ratio of 0.14. Prophylactic concizumab also conferred a significantly lower ABR among patients with hemophilia B compared with no prophylaxis, and that's an ABR of 3.1 versus 14.8 with a ratio of 0.21. So the confirmatory secondary endpoint included a non-inferiority analysis of the estimated annualized bleeding rate in treatment arm 4, which was a concizumab prophylaxis, in the Explorer 8 trial compared with the previous standard prophylactic care used in the Explorer 6 trial. The trial did not meet its key secondary confirmatory endpoint as it failed to establish non-inferiority of concizumab compared with previous prophylactic therapy. There were comparable mean ABR values for those who received concizumab compared with previous prophylaxis, 2.3 versus 2.2 for hemophilia A and 1.4 versus 2.1 for hemophilia B. And at this point, I'd like to just pause for a moment and ask Dr. Chowdhury to comment on why you think we haven't seen non-inferiority over non-factor prophylaxis in some of these studies. Yeah, I think it's very interesting because we have seen that the drug is effective and we would expect it to be at least the same as the current factor prophylaxis. One of the things that uh, is not very evident when we look at the estimated mean ABR is the fact that there were about three patients who in fact, had a higher bleed rate compared to what they were doing on a standard prophylaxis. I think this is something we've seen in the non-replacement therapy area, where some patients appear to be what we would call as non-responders. And that is reflected in the median ABR because the median ABRs are comparable, but the estimated mean ABRs are not the same, are almost the same. It's, uh, and But if you look at the number of patients with zero bleeds, which is about a third of the patients, it's something what we would have seen with, uh, we have seen that with the EHL uh, factor 9s and 8s as well. So if you, the proportion of patients with zero bleeds and the median ABR is what we have seen with factor, factor replacement uh, therapy, but the, not the estimated mean ABR does not show non-inferiority. And that's to do in my personal opinion, and what we've seen of the data is that there are a few patients who just don't respond to this uh, these kinds of interventions. Yeah. 
I think that's a very insightful observation and a very good analysis of the data because it's easy to look at these endpoints and say you didn't achieve it. But the real question is, why is that so? And um, is there still efficacy that we can gain from this that perhaps we've missed by just looking at these global numbers and the uh, aggregate number of patients? So thank you for that. So this is the data that was recently presented at ASH, looking at the 56-week cutoff for participants, the overall median annualized bleeding rate on concizumab prophylaxis in arms 1 through 4 was 1.7 for hemophilia A and 2.8 for hemophilia B. These results are also supportive of the secondary efficacy assessments. The patient with a maximum ABR of 91.3, and I think this speaks very well to what Dr. Chowdhury just discussed, had one treated bleed and withdrew from the study after four days. So when you look at calculating an ABR, you're taking what's happened over four days and expanding upon that, and you come up with quite a large number. Overall, this data reveals that concizumab prophylaxis showed longer term, greater than or equal to one-year efficacy in both adult and adolescent patients with hemophilia A and B at the 56-week cutoff, which was consistent with the results observed at the confirmatory analysis cutoff. So concizumab prophylaxis was really considered safe and well-tolerated in these patients with hemophilia A and B. For this analysis, patients had to have a target joint at baseline, and only patients who were on treatment for at least 12 months were included, for this target joint resolution analysis. Target joints were defined as three or more spontaneous bleeds into a single joint with a consecutive within a consecutive six-month period. Target joints were deemed resolved when they had been less than or equal to two bleeding episodes in the joint during the previous 12 months of exposure. Target joints at baseline by age group and target joint resolutions during the trial were assessed. Overall, 86% of target joints resolved in patients with hemophilia A or B, and 92% of target joints resolved in patients with hemophilia A or B with an inhibitor. And I think that's um, a very significant outcome. And you can see the numbers here also listed based upon the age groups, specifically breaking this down by adults versus adolescents. This data was also recently presented at ASH to evaluate those patients on concizumab in the Explorer 7 and 8 trials. Minor surgical procedures were permitted during Explorer 7 and 8 trials, and the management of these procedures was at the investigator's discretion. Planned major surgery was not permitted, and for any cases of acute major surgery uh, or injury, a concizumab pause was recommended. Data regarding both minor and major surgeries uh, were undertaken in patients and collected at the 56-week cutoff in the trials. Local or topical use of antifibrinolytics was permitted during surgical procedures in both trials, and single systemic doses were allowed following an individual benefit-risk evaluation for the patient. Patients undergoing minor surgical procedures continued to receive concizumab prophylaxis during the perioperative period with no change in the dose they received. 38 minor surgical procedures were performed in a total of 30 patients. 23 of the 28 minor procedures were performed without bleeding. 
Minor surgery-related bleeds were reported in 15 of the 39 procedures, with one surgery-related bleed being classified as severe. Minor surgeries required treatment with factor products in 8 of 38 procedures, and all were dental. Overall, most minor surgeries that took place were dental procedures. The majority of surgical-related bleeding episodes were mild or moderate. The authors concluded that overall minor surgeries could be performed on patients with hemophilia under concizumab prophylaxis. I think more data on this needs to be collected as we move into real-world settings and undergo, and our patients do undergo procedures. This slide describes the thrombotic cases experienced in Explore 7 and 8 trials. Three patients reported three thrombotic events that resulted in a study pause. The trial data evaluation and the development of a risk mitigation strategy prior to study restart. All three patients who experienced thrombosis shown here on the right side of the uh, slide had thrombotic risk factors at baseline and had used concomitant hemostatic medication on the day of or up to the event onset. One patient experienced a renal infarct that upon careful review of the prior scans may have been present before study enrollment. The second patient experienced an acute MI and the third a DVT and PE. A risk mitigation strategy was developed for the study restarted. In terms of safety, there were 230 persons with hemophilia A and B without inhibitors with ages ranging from 12 to 79 years who were exposed to concizumab in a pooled analysis of Explore 3 to 8 studies. No thromboembolic events were reported after restart of the trials post-risk mitigation strategy, and I'll go over that strategy in the next slide. There were five fatal outcomes reported, and this is a large group of patients, many of which were fragile. They included alcoholic coma, COVID-19, a road traffic accident, intra-abdominal hemorrhage, and intracranial hemorrhage, with one possibly due to concizumab treatment. 10 patients withdrew from treatment due to adverse events. 21.3% of the patients developed an anti-drug antibody after exposure to concizumab, with 95.5% of these patients unaffected by the anti-drug antibody. Overall, concizumab prophylaxis post-trial pause and restart was considered safe and well-tolerated. Here is the dosing schema developed in the post-risk mitigation strategy. All patients on concizumab received an initial 1 milligram per kilogram loading dose, followed by a daily 0.2 milligram per kilogram maintenance dose. At steady state, approximately one month, all patients had their concizumab levels measured, and if they were below 200 nanogram per mil, the daily dose was increased to 0.2 milligram per kilogram, and if they were above 4,000 nanograms per, per ml, the daily dose was increased to 0.2, uh, the, da the daily dose was decreased to 0.15 milligram per kilogram, excuse me. The remaining and the majority of patients stayed on the 0.2 milligram per kilogram dose as their levels were between 200 to 4,000 nanogram per milligram. In conclusion, Concizumab prophylaxis effectively reduced the ABR compared with no prophylaxis in patients with hemophilia A and B. 
There were no thromboembolic events reported following implementation of the risk mitigation phase. Concizumab exposure was stable over time with associated suppression of the TFPI and a normal utilization of the thrombin generation potential. So the second anti-TFPI that we'll review is mirastezumab, which also targets the K2 domain of TFPI. Shown here is a complex structure of mirastezumab, revealing the respective binding epitope on the TFPI K2 domain. The TFPI K2 domain is shown in surface representation with residues involving factor 10A interactions colored in green. The residues involved in binding are colored with yellow for 10A and green for mirastezumab in panel B. Panel C shows the co-structure of mirastezumab, FAB, and the TFPI K2 complex. Overall, mirastezumab has a lower binding affinity for the K2 domain as compared to concizumab. BASIS is a global phase 3 open-label multi-center study evaluating the ABR through 12 months of treatment with mirastezumab in approximately 145 adolescent and adult participants aged 12 to less than 75 years with severe hemophilia A or moderately severe to severe hemophilia B, either with or without inhibitors. Approximately 15% of participants are adolescents ages 12 through less than 18 years of age. This study is comparing treatment with a run-in period for patients prescribed factor replacement therapy or bypass therapy during a six-month period, which is an observational period with a 12-month active treatment phase during which participants receive morstezumab prophylaxis. A 300-milligram subcutaneous loading dose of morstezumab is followed by 150 milligrams once weekly with potential for dose escalation to 300 milligrams once weekly if participants met the criteria based upon the number of breakthrough bleeds. Marstazumab was administered weekly with a FLAT, which is a non-weight-based dosing. The primary efficacy endpoints included ABR, incidence and severity of thrombotic events, incidence of antidrug antibodies, and neutralizing antibodies against marstazumab and overall safety. The inhibitor cohort of the BASIS trial has completed enrollment and is expected to read out as early as late 2024. Compared to routine prophylaxis, treatment with marstazumab resulted in a 35.2% mean reduction in ABR over 12 months. Marstazumab significantly reduced ABR by 91.6% compared to on-demand therapy over 12 months to 3.18 ABR. The mean ABR reductions observed with mustazumab were consistent across hemophilia A and B as well as age groups for on-demand and were generally consistent across hemophilia A and B as well as age groups for routine prophylaxis with all point estimates for a difference of less than 2.5 and this number represents the non-inferiority margin for the ABR of treated bleeds. In the long-term extension phase, which is the third part of each of those tables or graphs, a consistent reduction in ABR compared to on-demand with a mean ABR of 3.86 and further numerical reduction compared to routine prophylaxis with an ABR of about 2.27 were observed after up to additional 16 months of follow-up in 87 patients. 
in the on-demand group superiority with a p-value of less than 0.0001 of morstazumab was demonstrated across all bleeding-related secondary endpoints, including spontaneous joint, target joint, and total bleeds. In the routine prophylaxis group, morstazumab demonstrated non-inferiority to these secondary efficacy endpoints. Fairly significant data. The safety profile for morstazumab was consistent with the phase 1-2 results and treatment was generally well tolerated. No deaths were reported and there were no thromboembolic events or events of consumptive coagulopathy recorded in hemophilia patients in the clinical trials investigating this agent. The most commonly reported adverse events of special interest among these patients treated with morstazumab and in the basis trial on the long-term extension that occurred in greater than or equal to 5% of patients were COVID-19, hemorrhage, hepatic disorder, hypersensitivity, hypertension, and injection site reaction, many of which are not specific to the actual medication. One treatment-related serious adverse event was observed consisting of peripheral swelling, and one patient discontinued from the trial due to a non-treatment-related SAE. 20.5% of participants developed an antidrug antibody, all of which were transient and resolved by the end of study without effect on the safety profile. So now back to our case. Um, this individual actually started concizumab and in, uh, as a compassionate use trial, and he used this for six months post-inhibitor development uh, at a dose of a point of about 0.24 milligram per kilo uh, daily dosing. His treatment was held during the study pause uh, for a period of time and then restarted. And he was restarted on 7A prophylaxis during that pause, but he experienced quite a few number of breakthrough bleeding episodes during the pause. And his family was quite concerned and wanted to go back to concizumab when it was uh, released from the pause due to its efficacy. When he restarted concizumab prophylaxis in 2021, he did so without a loading dose, and he had no spontaneous breakthrough bleeds then, only injury-related bleeds. Uh, these occur about one to two per month. He is a bit clumsy, uh, and uh, he clearly had decreased disease burden and number of days bleeding on con the concizumab prophylaxis. So there were clear advantages and considerations uh, for this novel agent in this patient. Uh, there are other uh, um, novel agents that are emerging that could be considered, and I think we are turning it over to uh, Dr. Chowdhury to discuss some of these. Thanks very much, uh, Dr. Shapiro. So I think we're going to now kind of look in terms of what else does the feature hold for our group of patients. I think the one that has been in development for a longest period has been fetisuran, which essentially does a transcriptional silencing of the synthesis of antithrombin. And it just leverages uh, one of the natural endogenous pathways. And in this, uh, the idea is that if there is a decreased thrombin generation because of lack of factor eight and nine, you knock out one of the inhibitors or you downregulate the inhibitors, which is antithrombin, and then you restore the thrombin generation. So think in terms of what happened to the clinical trials. 
If you look at the phase three trials that were published, I think what we see is there's a dose-dependent reduction in terms of the antithrombin. On the left side, you see the percentage change in antithrombin compared to baseline when the patients were on bypass agents. And then we also have the increase in peak thrombin generation as an outcome of this uh, reduction in antithrombin levels. So I think we had uh, the ATLAS studies both in A and B and also in inhibitor. Basically, we saw a reduction in terms of the uh, analyzed bleed rate compared to the on-demand uh, period. So the median ABR when they were on factor or bypass prophylaxis was about 4.4 and it dropped down to zero with about again a third of the patients having no bleeds over a period of a year. If we now just uh, concentrate on the ATLAS inhibitor study, so this is essentially hemophilia A and B patients with an inhibitor, and I think you can see that there is a reduction in the bleed rate from about 16.8 to 0, and the estimated mean ABR drops from about 18 to about 1.7, again attesting to the fact that reduction of antithrombin is a mechanism that does reduct or reduce the bleeding tendency. And then again, we now look at the same drug in terms of the ATLAS A and B, where this is a group. This includes patients who are on demand with factor therapy with hemophilia A and B. Again, and that is reflected on the uh, annualized bleed rate before fitosuran, which is about 21.8, and then it drops down to zero. What's interesting is to again look in terms of the zero number proportion of patients with zero treated bleeds. And we are now here gone up to about half of the patients, or so 50% of the patients had no bleeds that required treatment over a period of uh, 12 months. And then I think if you say if you say that one uh, up to three is an acceptable number of bleeds, then it goes up to 83%. That is essentially 83% of the cohort did not uh, had three or less than three sleeps. If we now compare in the next cohort is where patients were already on prophylaxis, whether it is bypass prophylaxis or factor prophylaxis, again, we saw a reduction in terms of the uh, bleed rate. So I think in terms of, although we have seen the kind of efficacy of antithrombin inhibition in terms of reducing the bleed tendency in terms of uh, restoring thrombin generation and addressing the bleed tendency. Unfortunately, we had a few thrombotic events within the study, and that resulted in a couple of study pauses. But the last pause, there was, and this was something that the sponsor undertook, they re-evaluated all of the data to see, is there a possibility for us to change the target antithrombin level, ensuring that it is efficacious, but also making it much more safer. So I think the suggestion was that the thrombosis was mostly associated or seen in patients where the antithrombin level was less than 10%. So now the lower bound of antithrombin was more to 15%. But we also know that you need to have a certain minimum reduction of antithrombin for the drug to be efficacious. And I think generally it was ideally it should be less than 25%. And I think the upper bound was agreed to be about 35%. So this is the absolute value of antithrombin rather than a relative reduction. So the now new target antithrombin range is 15 to 35%.
So because the, the previous dosing was a flat dosing of 80 milligram per kilogram, and this is the new, so, uh, uh, then the, a new regimen was initiated. So basically the idea was that the patients would be started now on fitucirat 50 milligram every two months. You would measure the antithrombin level, and based upon the antithrombin level, you would titrate or titrate up or titrate the dose or down the dose. So the idea is the you should be getting uh, antithrombin level between 15 to 35 percent. But if you don't get uh, into this range after two dose changes, then essentially you are off the study. So this is a study that has been reinitiated, and we hope to see the data again in 2024 to see if the new dosing regimen is uh, in terms of the thrombotic risk, but also the efficacy, because by pushing up the antithrombin level a little bit higher than what we have seen with the 80 milligram, are we going to see any reduction in the efficacy of the drug? So I think then and finally, there's one more anti-natural anticoagulant left. I thought for a long time we wouldn't touch it, but suddenly we do have serpent PC, which is a serine protease inhibitor of activated protein C. And the idea is that it would only inhibit the APC that is actually inactivating our, our factor A. So basically, you do not see anything. You can't really measure it. Uh, within the blood. So what I mean to say is you can't pick it up in thrombin generation, which is what we have been used to with all of the other drugs. Again, as is standard, it has gone to a single ascending dose and a multi-ascending dose. And currently, it is going through uh, the part five, where essentially patients are receiving 1.2 milligram uh, per kilogram every two weeks. I think they've looked at the flat dose and now moving on to a milligram per kilogram dose. What again we can see from this is the part three or part four, this is just different dosing regimens. Is if you look at the median ABR, it's looking at 34, 35, which is what we would expect in patients who are really on on-demand treatment. It drops down to about 6.2, 2.2. That's really 80 to 90% reduction suggesting inhibition of activated protein C is effective for reducing the bleed tendency. Again, I think this is the latest data that was the part five, which was the dosing that was done per kilogram uh, every couple of weeks. Again, this shows that the median AVR drops to about 0.1 from 35, showing a 96% reduction in terms of the bleed, uh, in terms of the bleed rate. Again, it was well tolerated and there were no real treatment-related adverse events or elevation of a D-dimer. So I think in terms of if we have to summarize in terms of our non-tractor therapies or non-replacement therapies, what we have now done over the last 10 years is that we've kind of established that restoration of thrombin generation is an established treatment strategy. I think 10, 15 years ago, if somebody would have asked us, I would have said, well, I'm not so sure, but now we have seen the proof and in fact the advantages to the patients in terms of the subcutaneous uh, administration result in a market reduction in treatment burden. Again, this is, these are some of the benefits that Dr. Shapiro already mentioned at the start of the presentation. But more importantly, we also have to start thinking that is it possible that we can use these interventions in other bleeding disorders? because they are agnostic of the underlying uh, deficiency that is contributing to the 
bleeding tendency. But the biggest benefit is really in the patients with inhibitors. This is a group of patients who are not really seeing a therapeutic strategy for a long period of time. And for the first time, we are able to, we have been able to offer a intervention for hemophilia A patient. And now for, that is a reality in the next few months, even for patients with hemophilia B and inhibitors. In terms of the challenges, I think we've talked about the risk of thrombosis. And this is again related to the underlying comorbidities and partly related to the age of the patient as well. The other thing which we have not talked about today, but is an important thing, is to understand the impact on the natural history of the disease. What do we mean by this? Because the you have steady state hemostasis, these patients behave more like mild hemophilia patients. So basically, that are the uh, what patients appreciate in terms of the bleed. It has changed, and sometimes that is a bit of a challenge, educating the patients to understand well, what is a bleed and not a bleed. And that is something is an ongoing conversation for all of us. We also need to start understand thinking in terms of how do you transition patients from one agent to another agent, because really we would like to have our patients to have no bleed. And what some of the studies have shown us is there is the concept of non-responders. If a patient is non-responding, the scope for intensification is, is quite minuscule, and therefore you might want to transition to a different therapy. And again, we need to understand how better to monitor our patients, not just hemostatically, but also from a uh, joint perspective. I think we now move on to the Q&A session, and maybe I can ask the first question to Dr. Shapiro. I think one of the questions, Amy, that has been asked in terms of the uh, impact of the non-phycotherapies in the overall quality of life of patients, particularly if there are any differences in patient experiences or preferences between the various non-phycotherapies. Yes, I, I think that's a great question. It's it's hard to compare one against the other. At this point in time in the United States, we only have one licensed um, that has definitely shown an impact on quality of care, patient acceptance, um, feeling of improved health and well-being on that therapy. Uh, but from one to the other, I think it's going to take um, real-world treatment and use of these agents to know for any individual patient what is particularly best and meets their needs and helps them achieve their goals. Do you think that, I mean, we used to talk a lot about personalization of prophylaxis in the era of replacement therapy. Do you think that we, we need to revisit the issue of personalization, but with different parameters? Yes. Um, it, you know, it's it's interesting. It, each person, each individual that we treat has their own perspective. Um, many of my patients have just loved using a factor eight mimetic, especially the infants and the parents. But there are some patients who um, prefer to use a factor eight replacement therapy, for example, if they don't have an inhibitor especially if they're very active because they have a peak and they feel more confident given that peak in terms of their activity level. 
so I do think it's going to change and the conversation's going to change over time, how we treat our patients and what's the best mix or personalization. I'm just going to answer a couple of questions. One of the questions was really related to the fact is if there was any reason to the timing of breakthrough bleeds with emicizumab. Uh, and I think they said, do they come more in the first year of therapy? I think bleeds to always tend to be higher in the first year of treatment, not with an agent, but it's the first year of what I would say is a switch from an on-demand treatment to a prophylactic strategy. Also, if the patients have had poor disease control with a lot of target joints, the bleeds always tend to be higher in the first year. But we've also seen sometimes patients reporting bleeds when they're on once every four weeks regimen. And then I think at least in our center, patients do report bleeds. We have moved them back to once a, a weekly regimen to see if that would might make a difference. I don't know, Amy, if you have moved anybody to a weekend. Yeah. Yes, we have. We've done exactly the same thing. You know, the, the study showed equal efficacy and comparable levels, regardless of the interval that you used. But actually, the curve for the weekly therapy is somewhat higher than the Q4 week therapy. And so for some patients, we have moved them to weekly. It also gives us uh, the opportunity if we think we need to double that dose to do it in that fashion. This is a very, I mean, I think a very pertinent question. I think they've asked us in terms of the decision-making around the management of breakthrough bleeds, and particularly if there are any gaps in the evidence or guidance when it comes to managing the treatment. Maybe I can have a stab at it first, and I would not value your, your thoughts as well. I think one of the big things is getting the patients to re-engage counts of how their disease feels. The disease feels different, and I think it is getting the patients in my, at least in the adults, getting them to relearn how they how do their joints feel when they have good disease, when they have no bleeds, and what are the subtle changes. I think that is one of the things we have noticed, in particular in adult patients. In terms of the management of bleeds, I think with joint bleeds, generally, again, you manage with a couple of doses. But with muzzle bleeds, we are often noticing they come much more later. So we are ending up treating them longer, not because they just picked up much more later, therefore we are treating them for longer. Yeah, I think that's absolutely our experience as well. I think one thing you mentioned during the um, webinar that is very much struck close to home for us is the fact that you do convert these patients oftentimes to a mild phenotype. They become more active and they think they injured themselves and in fact they're actually bleeding. And then they tend to, like mild patients, come in late and then the comp the the bleed treatment is a bit more complicated and more prolonged at that point in time. So it requires re-education. Thanks a lot, Amy. Thanks very much. Thank you all for joining us today, I think, uh, and for participating and actively asking us questions. I think this is an area of increasing amount of choice, but also there is a, a lot of relearning to be done both by the patient and also by the clinicians. Thank you for joining us today. Take care. Listening. 
download materials, and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash YXF 860. This activity is supported by an educational grant from Novo Nordisk Incorporated.